Section 3 of Unknown London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Unknown London by Walter George Bell. Chapter 3 The Shrine of Edward the Confessor. Zeppelin Knights and the Shrine of Edward the Confessor. The two things seem whole worlds of time and thought apart. They have been brought into close relation since the European War opened astonished eyes to the depths of barbarism that may exist in a people hitherto deemed civilized. So four years ago it became necessary to protect, as far as was possible, without bodily removal, the most sanctified shrine in our land, lest explosive culture, aimed earthwards out of dark skies, should disturb the confessor's long rest. Sandbags were brought into Westminster Abbey, and piled about the shrine, and the work done required the temporary removal of its wooden superstructure, exposing to view the cavity which holds the coffin of the saint. Most curious and unexpected and grotesque in its association there, dropped in upon the coffin lid, was found lying an unposted letter. It had lain undisturbed well nigh two hundred years, for the date and the handwriting were those of the early eighteenth century. How it got poked away in such a place, or by whom, no one can tell. I suspect the lazy Westminster schoolboy, entrusted with taking the letter to the mail office, who, while sauntering through the abbey, conceived the idea of thrusting it through a crevice into the shrine, conscious that never in his lifetime would the hallowed grave yield up its secret. Perhaps horrible thought, the pocketing of the fee for postage was an incentive. The letter certainly originated in the school, for it was written by William West, the school barber, and the endorsement outside is to Charles Hart, at the sign of the crown at Bridge North. Shropshire. It is a venial sin to read a private letter after this lapse of time, and to smile at the writer's conventional phrases and quaint spelling. For West, though he lived in a home of learning, had absorbed little of it, and had small art penmanship. His task was to practice his craft on the shock-headed boys, for which he was given a stipend of but four o five a year with an additional twenty shillings for keeping the clock. Thus he wrote, and quite briefly, Dear friend, I make bold to trouble you with these few lines to satisfy you I am in good health. Living in hopes to see you once, in London, so that I should be very good, your friend, William Cole remembers his love to you, being my chief companion at the tombs so that I hear you're in good health, which is the most of my satisfaction, desiring to hear from you, and if you can conveniently to send a cock for a token 
against Shraff Tuesday. We'll drink your health and eat him for your sake, no more at present. But I rest your loving friend, William West. A cock and a bottle for feasting on Shraff Tuesday, these, and not the great dead, were the thoughts uppermost in the mind of the college barber, and Cole, his chief companion at the tombs. The letter miscarried, and I laughed shamefaced, I confess it, for tis a distressing thing to do in the abbey, as I stood at the shrine, and thought of that depleted feast, and the disappointment in not receiving the expected token, while all the time the missive was lodged before the writer's own nose. The confessor lies there, not in Mother Earth, but raised in this shrine, high above the kneeling pilgrims, who for so many centuries have resorted to his tomb. Their feet have worn hollow the stone beneath the arches. Last king of the royal Saxon line, he passed to his rest at a time, ominous with fate for his country and his race. A contemporary chronicler has related how when he was stretched dying in his palace at Westminster, amid fruitful trees lying about it, he saw in delirium two holy monks, who foretold to him the coming disasters of the realm, which should only be ended when the green tree, after severance from its trunk, and removal for the space of three acres, should return to its parent stem, and again bear leaf and fruit and flower. A horror, we are told, of great darkness filled the whole land. The king's burial was hastened on the morning after breath had left his frail body, and that same day Earl Harold, his successor, was crowned. Nine months later, Saxon England and Saxon institutions were overthrown by the Norman conquest. In the upheaval of all things, the tyranny and bondage forced upon the people by their ruthless conquerors, the subjects of the Saxon Edward, amid fruitful trees lying about it, that is a pleasant glimpse snatched from past centuries of ancient Westminster. Mr. Seabohm has ingeniously suggested that only one picture could have conjured up this otherwise unaccountable vision. The green tree was no doubt envisaged by an actual tree, growing out of one of the balks separating the acre strips below Thorny Island, and the uneven glass of the king's window panes would be likely, as he rose in bed, to sever the stem from its roots and transplant it higher up in the open field, in an acre strip three acres off, restoring it again to its root as he sank back upon his pillow. The very delirium of the dying king thus becomes the most natural thing in the world when we know that all round were the open fields and balks and acres. English Village Community Preserved the memory of their mild king with peculiar veneration. The actual man we see only through a web of romance which veils him, and most imperfectly, he was almost an albino, from youth his flowing hair was white his beard grew white and in contrast his cheeks of apple red and face frequently flushing gave to him a merry aspect the chroniclers speak of his thin white hands and long transparent ringers the touch of which had miraculous power to cure the evil 
he was a visionary and a mystic the legends that attach to his name are cut in stone in the screen which king henry the sixth built about his shrine he traced them one by one walking by the legends of a kindly king there is that of the hierogelt edward going to his royal treasury saw a black demon dancing on the casks containing the gold which his subjects were taxed to pay to maintain a fleet his mind awakened he abolished the oppressive tax in another panel is shown the sleeping king when in the absence of hugolin the steward a scullion broke into the bedchamber and rifled the royal money chest edward awoke haste he said to the thief he will not leave you even a half penny and to hugolin's remonstrances he replied the thief hath more need of it than we enough treasure hath king edward other subjects the medieval sculpture has figured are the appearance of st john to the two pilgrims and the seven sleepers of ephesus a wayside beggar implored the king to bestow alms upon him for the love of st john the confessor had no money but drew from his hand a ring large royal and beautiful this he gave to the beggar who vanished afterwards two english pilgrims making their way through syria were met by st john who gave them the very ring that edward had bestowed upon the supposed beggar telling them to return it to the king and to warn him that in six months time he should be with the saint in paradise the vision which edward had of the seven sleepers turning in their sleep was a warning of the disasters that after his death were to break upon the country no one of these or others of the fourteen legends so sculptured is to be found in the contemporary life of the confessor the vita midura regis written for his widow though they were current in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries they are growths about the revered personality of edward probably born in that century and a half while the norman oppression remained and accepted with unquestioning faith in ages less critical than ours edward was honored for his unfailing piety but none can truthfully call him a great ruler his word was not to be taken Quote, there was nothing that he would not promise from the exigency of the time he pledged his faith on both sides and confirmed by oath anything that was demanded of him End quote. he was negligent as a statesman after the long hours he spent in devotions his pleasures were in hunting and the chase he quarrelled with his mother emma whose large treasure he seized he was alienated from his wife and sent her in disgrace to a nunnery reared in a norman court he gathered norman favorites about him to whom he gave place though the open hostility of his subjects often denied them power his english patriotism was doubtful so far as we are permitted to see the character of the man was petulant irresponsible at times it would seem almost childish such virtues as he had were those of the cloister rather than the throne dean stanley well said quote, edward's claims of interment here rest not on any act of power or fame but only in his artless piety and simple goodness he towards whose dust was attracted the fierce norman 
and the proud Plantagenet, the grasping Tudor, and the fickle Stuart, even the independent Oliver, the Dutch William, and the Hanoverian George, was one whose humble graces are within the reach of every man, woman, and child of every time, if we rightly part the immortal substance from the perishable form. End quote. And who shall measure the extent to which the founding of the vast Abbey of Westminster has contributed to building up the name and fame of Edward the Confessor? It has colored all our conceptions of him. It has fixed his memory in the minds of all subsequent generations, the memory of a king whose personal influence in his reign was slight. The laws of King Edward came from stronger hands than his. The reign might have passed as uneventful but for the tragedy, we do not call it so now, which so quickly followed its close. A little religious house that before was standing on the Isle of Thorny, he demolished for his new foundation. The Saxon Abbey was stupendous for its time. To it, Edward devoted one-tenth of all his possessions. An arch, perhaps, some foundation stones, one dark, low passage, and a few courses in the claustral buildings, these alone remain. Edward was near his end when, fifteen years having been spent in building, the auspicious day appointed for the dedication came. He was absent when Archbishop Steigen performed the consecration ceremony on the 28th December, 1065. For eight days longer he struggled with mortal illness, and on the 6th January, the white corpse, attired in regal robes, with a crucifix of gold, a gold chain round the neck, and pilgrim's ring on the finger, was laid in the ground before the high altar, within the white walls of the abbey, then bearing fresh marks of the mason's tools. A plain stone sealed the sepulchre, the stone upon which later, that same year, the Norman conqueror stood and swore over the body of the confessor, to protect his English subjects. For eight and a half centuries the abbey has grown about the mortal remains of its founder, in arcades of stone and rich carving and stately tombs, and more for the great dead, who have been carried there, have become as much a part of its own walls. The confessor's sleep is undisturbed, though far back in our history, thrice has the sepulchre been moved, and at least on four occasions, curious eyes have beheld the saint's body possibly on more years before the church's decree was given the confessor was venerated as a saint by the people and in the reign of the first henry the grave was opened by the king's order to see if as was popularly believed the body remained uncorrupt bishop gundolf who stood by then plucked out a hair from the long white beard the first translation of the confessor's remains followed the canonization, and took place at midnight, the date the 13th October, 1163. It was an occasion such as the monkish chroniclers loved to dwell upon, and so, from text in vile Latin, we know the proceedings in considerable detail. The brethren assembled in the vast abbey church, the candles lighted, leaving in ghostly darkness the cavernous recesses of the high roof. Psalms were sung, and litanies recited. Lawrence the abbot and the prior 
in full vestments, tapers in their hands, alms on their bodies, and barefooted, moved in procession to the high altar, two of the brethren with them, the others continuing their chants. They removed the upper stone of the coffin before the altar, and by the light of their tapers beheld within a man, lying in rich vestments of cloth of gold, having on his feet buskins of purple and shoes of great price. His head and face were covered with a rich covering, interwoven and wrought with gold. The long white beard, inclined to curl, fell descending upon his breast. Abbot and prior called in the remainder of the brethren, who with great piety and devotion began, some to touch the head, others the feet, and others the hands, which they found without any manner of corruption. They raised the corpse from the stone coffin, in which it had lain for two years short of a century, placed it on a tapestry upon the floor, and moved it to a wooden coffin which had been prepared. The ring was withdrawn from the finger and deposited in the abbey as a relic. A miracle was performed. Benedict, a clerk, and John, a layman, suffering from demonical possession, were led forward, and upon sight of the chest the demons were immediately cast out. The saints' remains were exposed for veneration in the choir. If a learned clerk of a later generation does not libel, the rich funeral vestments were removed from the body and fashioned into three magnificent copes, a remarkably irreverent proceeding. Henry the Second, Thomas A. Becket, Henry Bishop of Winchester, and others supported the body of St. Edward as he was borne in procession to the shrine, which the king had erected, all glittering with gold and silver. Henry the Third built the abbey as for the greater part we know it, and Ford conceived the new shrine for the founder more resplendent than anything known in his day, which should be the central object, focusing all attention amid these towering masses of masonry. It is the shrine before which we stand today, broken, sadly despoiled of its decoration. The golden feretory, which had closed upon the saint's coffin, replaced by a mere wooden tabernacle, and even that unfinished, still a priceless relic unique in westminster alone in england it was long believed did you find the corpse of a canonized saint preserved still in his shrine after the pitiless spoliation which accompanied the reformation petrus romanus civis signed the shrine peter the citizen of rome thought by some to be peter cavuini he was the general design of the whole the marble and red periphery of the base, the sculpture and elaborate decoration. He did not fashion the golden top, which may have been the task of Odo, the king's goldsmith, and his son Edward, or perhaps of Richard Abel. The little shrine, its measure the length of a man, is believed by Professor Lathaby to have cost Henry the Third the equivalent of from sixty thousand to eighty thousand of our money. While the abbey rose tall and wide under the hands of the masons, the preparation of it has been pointed out by Miss E. K. Prideaux, Arch Journal, Issue 119, that there is one other instance in England where the bones of a saint escaped the destruction 
which was so horribly complete. The body of St. White, or Candida, remains undisturbed in the original shrine in the church of Whitechurch Canoncorum, Dorset. The shrine was Henry's peculiar and personal care. It was many years in accomplishment. Early as 1241, twenty-eight years before it received the confessor's remains, a wooden basis for the golden feretory was fashioned, and was spent in the work of St. Andrew's shrine. Rarely a year passed in which the king's piety did not make some addition to its precious ornaments and jewels. Now it was a gold image of St. Edmund, crowned, having two great sapphires, again a king, with a great garnet in his breast and other stones. The Blessed Virgin and her son, set with rubies, emeralds, sapphires, and garnets, five angels of gold, an image of a king with precious stones and enameled and jeweled crown, a majesty, a figure of St. Peter, and more like. The queen gave an image of the virgin with emerald and ruby. Almost every inch of the marble basement was covered on its surface by mosaic, bright in color and wrought in the most elaborate patterns. The last may still be traced in places by imprints left in the cement, where the tesserae have been picked out by despoilers, tempted by the rich yellow and golden tones of the cubes. Hardly a foot of the original mosaic remains. An inscription was carried round the frieze, formed by larger pieces of deep blue glass, set in gold mosaic. At length abbey church and shrine were ready for the translation. The great nave still awaited completion. That nothing might be wanting, earth was brought from the sacred places of Palestine. A mound was reared, tumultuous-like, and upon its summit the confessor's shrine was erected. Resplendent in color, with glittering jewels and mosaics, its golden feretory, catching and reflecting the shafts of the sun, the shrine, centrally placed in the sanctuary of the new minister, blazed all down its long vistas. The screen which now so largely conceals it dates from Henry the Sixth. Like the confessor himself, Henry had grown old during the long years in which he watched the building of the Abbey Church of Westminster that was to be his monument. His reign was near its end. It is not necessary to recall here magnificent ceremonies on the 13th October, 1269, when the coffin of St. Edward was borne by the king, his brother, and his two sons, to the spot where, save for one short interval, it has remained ever since. The curious may read of them in the medieval chronicles. The sacred relics of the abbey were deposited in a chapel near the shrine, where now stands the chantry of Henry V. They included a phial containing some drops of his holy blood, a stone showing the marks of the Saviour's feet, and a girdle of the Virgin. Three years later King Henry III, laden with years and cares, passed to his own rest, and by his burial beside Edward's shrine, was the first of the illustrious line of England's kings, who in death have grouped themselves about the confessor. The Reformation came, and religious broil. The monks of Westminster fled. Again the coffin of Edward the confessor was moved, taken from its shrine, and buried in the ground. 
the whether by the monks as a measure of precaution before they dispersed or by authority of king henry the eighth is by no means clear some distinction seems to have been made for this saint of the line of england's kings the sheriffs and magistrates of the various counties received from cromwell explicit orders they were to repair severally to the cathedrals churches or chapels in which any shrine might be the relics reliquaries gold silver or jewels which it contained they were to seize and send to the king they were charged to see with their own eyes the shrine itself levelled with the ground and the pavement cleared of it st thomas a becket's shrine at canterbury being so despoiled the martyr's bones were torn from the tomb burnt to powder and scattered by the winds it is probable that the substantial lower part of edward's shrine at westminster including the arches was left in its place undisturbed for the rest the newcomers in authority within the abbey blindly hating all things papistical broke the shrine despoiled it of its jewels and mosaics and carried away the golden feretory which presumably was melted down gold images of the confessor and st john which had stood before the shrine upon the twisted pillars still surviving and many other figures of pure gold were removed to the royal treasury for the same purpose so the shrine remained empty desolate pitiful till the accession of queen mary brought back to westminster the old faith the convent was re-established for a brief spell abbot feckenham devoted himself to building up again the confessor's tomb so far as limited means allowed the golden feretory could not be replaced so large an expenditure being beyond the means of queen or church and a wooden tabernacle was raised where it had stood rather it would seem as a suggestion for something better than with lasting intention for it is still unfinished on the twelfth march fifteen fifty seven with a hundred lights king edward the confessor quote, was reverently carried from the place that he was taken up where he was laid when the abbey was spoiled and robbed and so he was carried and goodly singing and sensing as has been seen and mass sung indications abound of the haste with which the restoration of st edward's shrine was performed feckenham being unable to replace the mosaics filled the cavities with plaster which afterwards was painted over the cornice appears to be his own addition and at one corner was made from what seems to be pieces of window tracery a fragment of the original cornice was recovered in eighteen sixty eight built into the wall of westminster school and has been returned to its place the twisted pillars have been misplaced by the marian restorers as if intended to help support the ratabalum canon westlake who conducted a recent examination of the shrine has pointed out that two movable stones have place in the frieze their purpose still remains a puzzle his suggestion being that they were made so that objects brought by the worshippers could be held in contact with the saint's coffin to this day a candle held at one side of the shrine shows a thin ray of light above the coffin head happily the religious intolerance of the sixteenth century so hard and bitter has died down elizabeth was content to leave the shrine unmolested 
as it was left by Mary's and Feckenham's hands, doing nothing herself, the wooden tabernacle, plaster filling replacing the mosaic, and other evidences of restoration still seen are their work. Feckenham piously rewrote the inscription, of which only a few letters of the original remain. Fate decided that once again the confessor's grave should be disturbed, this time by pure accident. Workmen lowering the scaffolding in the abbey, which had been raised for King James II's coronation in sixteen eighty six, carelessly allowed a heavy bulk of timber to fall upon the temporarily uncovered shrine. It broke a hole in the coffin lid about six inches in length by four inches broad above the right breast. No attention was paid for a space of six or seven weeks when report of the matter reached one Henry Keep, who reared up a ladder and proceeded to explore in plain English to rifle the tomb. Keep, who writes himself gent, was an abbey chorister, an author of Monumenta Westmonsterinicia, a tiresome and inaccurate volume, but he had so little shame in his proceeding that he actually printed, under a pseudonym, a pamphlet about it, now the rarest of finds for a bibliophile. Quote, I looked into the coffin, Keep naively confesses, and found all things answerable to the report, and put my hand into the hole, and turning the bones, which I felt there, I drew from underneath the shoulder-bones a crucifix, richly adorned and enameled, and a gold chain of four and twenty inches long, unto which it was affixed, the which I immediately showed to my friends, they being as much surprised and gladly admired the same as myself. But I was afraid to take them away with me till such time I had acquainted the dean as the governor and chief director of our church, and thereupon I put them into the coffin again, with a full resolution to inform him. End quote. The dean was not then to be found. Quote, Fearing that this holy treasure might be taken thence by some other persons, and so concealed by converting it to their own use, I went, about two or three hours after, to one of the choir, who immediately accompanied me back to the monument, and from whence I again drew the aforesaid crucifix and chain, and showed them him who beheld them with admiration. At the time, when I took out of the coffin the aforesaid cross and chain, I drew the head to the hole, and viewed it, being very sound and firm, with the upper and other jaws whole and full of teeth, with a list of gold, above an inch broad in the nature of a coronet, surrounding the temples. There was also in the coffin white linen, and gold-colored flowered silk, that looked indifferent fresh, but the least stress a put thereunto showed it was well nigh perished. There were all his bones, and much dust likewise, all which I left as I found, taking only thence along with me the crucifix and the gold chain. Keep retained these precious relics in his possession for three weeks and five days, after which he showed them successively to the Archbishop of York, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sir William Dugdale, and others and eventually the finder was permitted to present them to the king. Quote, and being no sooner introduced into his majesty's closet, where I had the honor to kiss his royal hand, 
but upon my knees I delivered them with my own hands to him, which his most sacred majesty was pleased to accept with much satisfaction. Then Cape withdrew, leaving them safe as being now in his royal possession. End quote. How little could the finder forecast events! These relics of the Saxon king are not at Windsor. James assuredly appreciated their historical value and sanctified association. Chain and crucifix are said to have been on his person when he fled from his throne, and as he made for the sea coast in exile, they were rifled by the Faversham fishermen. They have not since been seen. James, however, reigned long enough for directions that he gave for better safeguarding the confessor's tomb to be carried out. A new outer chest was made for the saint's coffin, of planks of timber two inches in thickness, having iron bands lengthways and across, and additional clamps at the head and feet. The cavity within the shrine bears upon its surfaces rough marks of mason's tools, as if it had been enlarged to contain the enlarged coffin. Two iron tie-bars, sealed in the stone, give additional protection, and never is the sepulchre likely again to be disturbed. I wonder how many who pass by realize that amidst the vast company of the dead in Westminster Abbey, Edward the Confessor lies, not in the earth, but in his coffin raised high in the shrine, like a candle upon a candlestick, so that all who enter into the house of the Lord may behold its light, says an old chronicler. End of section three. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.